and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined by Harvey Young of Northwestern University. How are you doing, Harvey? How was winter break for you? It was great. I was in Mexico uh, hanging out with the kids. That sounds phenomenal. And I am joined also by Sarah Bay Jung of Bowdoin College. Sarah, are you back to work? Did you have a good break? What's up? Very good break. A little bit of travel, a little bit of theater. And uh, yeah, we're back in classes this week. So happy to be back at it. Yes, it's like nothing changed. It's been you know, a sort of unusually long interval between recordings for us. We released in early January and, or sorry, we released in um, early December and now it will be late January, but even podcasters need a little bit of a break from the grind. Um, Today on the podcast, we have three topics we're excited to discuss. We read Branislav Yakovlevich's Alienation Effect, um, this new book from Michigan. It came out in 2016. Um, It's about performance and self-management in Yugoslavia, 1945 to 1991. We're excited to talk about that. We're also going to dedicate a segment to The Theater Times. Um, TheTheaterTimes.com is a new theater news website launched by Magda Romanesca at Emerson, Um, and it's an interesting new venture. We'll get into it. And then finally, we wanted to talk a little bit about social media in the field, social media as it's used by theater and performance studies scholars. What are the trends in the way we use these things? What are the advantages of them? Are there disadvantages to them? What do we think? And of course, we'll have our drafts segment at the end. Um, Before we get to those major topics, the news roundup, Um, Late breaking is that uh, the ATHA conference planning meeting just happened in Las Vegas. Harvey, as uh, president-elect of ATHA, you were there. Can you tell us anything about how that went? Uh, It was great. It was a mid-year meeting aimed at locking down the final details related to the ATHA 2017 conference in Las Vegas, which will occur August 3rd through 6th. Uh, 2017, and it looks great. Uh, It's a fantastic venue, Planet Hollywood. There's an amazing uh, layout in terms of the conference facilities so that it'll feel quite intimate, uh, even though you're in the midst of all this sort of excess (laughs) of Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And I encourage everyone to uh, come apply uh, for some uh, to be curated still plenary sessions, or just come by and hang out and check out the sessions uh, at the conference in August. It'll be great. That sounds great. Sounds like it'll be a great conference. I saw on uh, Facebook right before we started recording that I think Patricia Ybarra had posted a note on her Facebook page about some of the um, thematic issues or sort of the, um, you know, sort of major conference topics. So people should check that out. The next story we wanted to mention, um, this was uh, reported, I think, in early January, or maybe it was right at the end of the year. Um, Harvard ART's MFA program uh, was flagged by the Obama administration's initiative against uh, predatory higher ed programs. I don't don't think it's their MFA program. It's they have a two years, it's through ART has a two year certificate program. Oh, so, okay. So it was not the acting MFA program proper. That's an important no, distinction. No, and and that's and it's also that the the data that the uh, administration was collecting um, of debt relative to average income, it only mm-hmm. applied to certificate programs, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so I think MA, MFA, PhD were all exempt. Were not included sure. in that. It's it's so that's why. You know, Harvard ART showed up with a whole bunch of other institutions that don't yeah. often show up alongside Harvard ART, um, precisely because they had. I think it's just that certificate program. Right. Yes, Sarah's correct. Right. Um, that was interesting, and of course, you know, there are, there are different aspects to the story. One is precisely the fact that. Um, you know, it wasn't a survey of all academic programs and many, you know, certainly many PhD programs or MA programs um, might also uh, end up on this list. From what I understand, the list um, was determined by a ratio of, you know, one's average discretionary income certain number of years after finishing the program compared to uh, the amount of debt or the sort of average 
you know monthly um, debt repayment um, level, and so that if you know one's statistically, if one's income is not a certain uh, proportion or a certain uh, amount larger than one's debt payment, then this ends up being listed. And of course, this is a um, you know sort of controversial issue and, and bears closer examination. But we'll post the link to the New York Times story about that. We wanted to note also the uh, passing away of Carl Weber. Um, Carl Weber was a protege of Brecht um, and taught theater for many years at Stanford and was beloved by many. Um, and I think that there were um, articles posted online about him and, and fond memories of, of his career and his teaching and art making as well. We also wanted to note that um, we're going to talk later about a new website um, publication in the field, but we wanted to mention that hotreview.org um, seems to have, uh, I don't know, shuttered. Uh, Sarah, is that something that you noticed recently? And what was hotreview.org? So hotreview.org, and I believe hot stood for Hunter Online Theater Review, uh, was started by Jonathan Kalb at, at Hunter College uh, in New York. And it was uh, an opportunity for people to write about theater, mostly academics, but a lot of uh, other critics, in a way that was a bit slower and more thoughtful than your average uh, newspaper um, or magazine review that sort of turns around and is a kind of thumbs up, thumbs down, typically. And, but a bit more timely than the sort of laborious uh, timescale of the average academic journal, right, where the review might come out uh, several months, if not a year or more later than the show, after the show has closed. And so Hot, Hot Review really served this great uh, in-between. And, and I, you know, I never wrote for HotReview.org, mainly because I was too intimidated, I, I'll be honest with you. But I loved reading it. I thought there was a ton of great stuff. The other thing I really remember about that was that occasionally, mostly one or two people would write about a show, but occasionally a show would really animate several people. And so you'd get lots of interesting and very compelling different viewpoints. I remember the one that stands out in my mind is Pillow Man really elicited a number of different uh, perspectives, you know, whether we loved it or hated it. Um, I want to say Spring Awakening, the musical, Sean Marie Garrett wrote a wonderful uh, scathing critique of that show uh, that I felt was really necessary in in, uh, in the overall conversation that was happening. So it was a great resource. I don't know anything more other than I went to look for it the other day and saw that it, it all the archives were there, um, but that they were no longer posting new new reviews. Yes. All right. Well, that's that's a situation we'll we'll keep our eyes on. So perhaps the archives are preserved indefinitely, and perhaps there's a hiatus in, in publishing. But um, stay tuned for more will, investigative we, reporting from the on yeah, podcast. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to you with as this story unfolds. Yes, we'll do a special edition. What happened to HotReview.org? Where did HotReview? Yes, very good. Yeah. Um, one more uh, quick news item. I understand. I just heard from a former student who attended this that Reed uh, Reed College in in Portland just had a um, sort of early scholars um, career maker um, conference in Portland, and so a number of um, I think uh, graduate students participated in that. And I'm eager to hear more about that. It sounds like it was a great experience for those graduate students. So good job, Reed. So with those news stories uh, remarked upon, let's move on to our first topic, uh, Branislav Yakovlevich's uh, alienation effects. Um, this book came out last year. I had been you know, eagerly anticipating it coming out. Um, it's a big book, uh, larger monograph than your typical release from university presses and really just a rich and fascinating book that does a lot of different things at once. Um, I don't know about you guys, I, I really enjoyed reading it. Um, it's part a kind of social or labor history of the end of the nation of Yugoslavia, um, the second Yugoslavia, the, the, the country that existed from 1945 to 1991. So Branislav gets very much into um, the different uh, phases of um, social production and economic policy in that country during the um, you know roughly the second half of the of the 20th century. Um, a big part of the book is also a, an intellectual history of the post-war left. Um, there's a really nuanced and excellent discussion of 
um, the Praxis school and different schools of Marxist thought that were prevalent in the former Yugoslavia or prevalent in Yugoslavia during this period. Um, and it is, of course, also a performance history uh, that looks at live art, um, theater also, but performance art. Um, in Yugoslavia at this time, uh, but through a resolutely social dimension, so that Branislav is insistent in the introduction and throughout about a sort of non-distinction between art making and um, uh, you know social mode of production, so that economics or political economy on the one hand and art making and aesthetics on the other are thoroughly merged merged during this period. And you get the sense from Branislav that this is not only a historically correct way of looking at Yugoslavia and um, uh, economics during this period because the um, official policy of self-management um, uh, incorporated um, maybe maybe it's not correct to say that self-management incorporated art but that the the way that art was produced and distributed um, in Yugoslavia at the time merged with um, uh, economic production methods, but also you get the sense that Branislav believes that this is something that is true more broadly and not just within the constraints of uh, um, Yugoslav history, that art making is a social production process and needs to be understood that way before art is understood as um, differentiable uh, according to formal categories or um, economic uh, modes of distribution of the art itself. So I don't know, I had, you know, a couple thoughts about this that I'll just sort of lay out. And I want to hear what you guys thought. On the one hand, I feel like the book really successfully tackles all of the topics that it takes on. But to my mind, it it felt as though the book that um, Branislav's heart was in was the sort of labor history and political history of Yugoslavia. Um, and that it certainly is rich, a rich performance history, and certainly the theoretical um, discussions of notions of performance in Marxian, or pardon me, in Marxist thought, um, were really cogent and compelling. But you got the fen- the sense that this is a very intense and um, uh, serious personal undertaking for Branislav telling the history of uh, his home country um, and that you know at times the sort of it, the, the book seemed to bend itself over into talking about performance as such um, in ways that seemed like they were a little bit distant from that original project but I think it it, it holds together successfully Um I don't know. I have another thing that I want to say about uh, the sort of organization of resistance movements and socialist politics now. But why don't I hold put a pin in that for now and ask you guys what you thought about the book? Well, I I really enjoyed it. Uh, I found parts of it easier to to engage with than others. Uh, one of the challenges I, I think for a, a project as as rich and and as uh, informationally dense. As this, I mean, there's a lot of material that that Branislav is pulling together uh, in in really compelling ways. But I mean, some of the some of the sections, you know, I've, I I kind of had to take notes to keep track of all the kind of key key players. Um, and there's this wonderful way in which the book kind of, um, and I don't know how to do this verbally, right? I could do it gesturally, but really kind of why don't you know, I, I'll describe your gestures to the listeners. merges <laughs> and then diverges right there's this kind of like ebb and flow to the structure and so the parts that I think some people uh, if you're like me may find more challenging is is those moments of convergence right where you there's lots of things that are very densely packed together and multiple layers of influence and and really a very tightly knit network of what's kind of going on in a particular moment. And it's really important because I think one of the things that the book demonstrates is is just how significant all the bits and pieces are to understanding all the other bits and pieces. Um, Mm -hmm. But then for me, then there are these wonderful moments of expansion where all of a sudden he allows different narratives to separate and we can see kind of like the fruits of this kind of intense reading uh, effort then really 
play out. And one of those is is in an extended period of talking about Beckett's waiting for Godot in the context uh, uh, of, of you know, Yugoslavian politics and, the, and this kind of transition and the notions of self-management and how it's received and the different critical responses to it. And there's a series of wonderful, uh, you know, accounts where he really lets these extended quotes speak for themselves mm-hmm. uh, and and really inform. And, and for me, it was like a completely new uh, and enriching take on the play. I found it really engaging. Um, and so, and so every time I would sort of start, and, the, and much of the book kind of proceeds that way. I thought his discussion of Gina Pana and uh, ex- expanded media did a similar thing later in the book. Um, so yeah, I thought that that kind of convergence and divergence was really was really wonderful. And so, and and there's a there's a significant payoff, you know, as the as the book unfolds. Yeah, and and for me, it was a really compelling read. Uh, and and in many ways, I wish there was a. Uh, an audio component <laughs> to, to this book hmm. uh, because in style it feels a lot like uh, a series of lectures like a series of, of sort of guided tours through not only theory but also the history of political movements within Yugoslavia the former U- Yugoslavia and uh, and even to the point where uh, in moments uh, you as a reader are sort of told, here, look at this painting, let me describe it for you. And, it, and I thought that was sort of rich mm-hmm. and evocative. Uh, what I mm-hmm. greatly appreciate about this book is the ways in which going into it, you know that y- Yugoslavia is essentially doomed, <laughs> right? You know, it's not, going to, it's not going to survive the end of this book because it's about this dissolution of, um, uh, of the territory. Uh, but what Bredislav gives us is uh, this wonderful uh, textured, introduction to the emergence of both politics and art and sort of self-management in tandem uh, and demonstrates how across uh, whatever it is like 50 years uh, you can see you know how the instability and like the, the, the regional instability you know specifically within Yugoslavia uh, gets impacted across the arts of all forms right sculpture painting uh, festival culture uh, performance art as well and what he wants to do is to say that you know, in this dynamic mix of politics uh, emerging and then collapsing and then redefining itself, uh, you also have the international influence of artistic culture coming in with also Yugoslavian artists going out, right? So it's not Mm -hmm. simply a matter of looking at, you know, the impact and influence of the Soviet Union on Yugoslavia. It's also looking at the influence and impact of Yugoslavian artists whose work travels broadly uh, outside that territory. So I thought it was really rich and textured. I agree. And I think in a way you guys are noting a similar um, feature of the book that I hadn't really thought of, but that it does, you know, expand and contract really gracefully and and felicitously. And, you know, Sarah talks about the sort of convergence and divergence of different narrative strands. And and Harvey, I, I was completely in agreement that, you know, there's something interesting about the scope of it. It's this big book. Um, it's about Yugoslavia, which from, you know, an American perspective, um, you know, we're, we're familiar distantly and, and in my case sort of hazily with the particulars of the wars in the 1990s. You know, it's a, it's a Eastern European country, relatively small in terms of um, American, you know, sort of uh, consciousness. But he does such a wonderful job of showing you the way that the um, strains of left thought were um, quite influential, you know, emanating out of Yugoslavia and uh, especially in, in, in communication and debate with French um, leftist thought in the middle of the century in the, in the uh, post-1968 era. Um, and also, you know, it, it's, it's a, you, you might look at this book and say, okay, this is about, you know, uh, 45 years in, Yugoslavia, it seems like a very particular topic, but I was totally in agreement with with Sarah as well. For me, it was, um, you know, the way he talks about alienation, um, both, you know, Marx, uh, Marxian alienation, Brechtian alienation. Um, I learned, I felt like I learned a great deal from his insights on those topics and from, you know, from talking, you know, talking about artists, many of whom I had not heard about, but um, it's really an enlightening read. Um, and yeah, really, I feel like a really successful book. I'm glad to have read it. There's also, at the end, as he sort of wraps it around to uh, 
notions of late capitalism and particularly neoliberalism that where I think again there's a there's a really significant payoff in terms of thinking about where are we right now and you know I it, it is I was I had the same thought as Harvey right it's like it's like Oedipus you know how it ends but um <laughs> Uh, and you kind of know who did it, but mm-hmm. but watching the process of that unfold over the course of the book uh, is is really valuable. And then this, uh, you know, he has this kind of gesture uh, towards the end of the book, and in a relatively brief conclusion, but I found incredibly potent. Uh, that again, I think sort of speaks to to a lot of things that are happening right now. Um, the other thing I will say is uh, that it, that is incredibly is like, there there aren't many of them, but but there are several well timed jokes within the book, and they are almost always deployed to great effect. And so I, I you know just when I thought like oh this has gotten very heavy, mm-hmm. like Brandon's thought, and it's almost always in, in parentheses, right? He and he right. just has like these very funny little jokes and little lines throughout the book. So they're like little Easter eggs that you can sort of track as you go through. You know, Sarah, I wanted to sort of pick up on your line of thought about the contemporary context. Part of what the book made me feel is is a sort of sense that I've been feeling since the election, which is just the how far away the 20th century seems now. And Lord knows we're 17 years into the new century, but part of the um, disorientation that I and I think other people have felt about American politics since the election is bound up in or described by a kind of uh, estrangement or alienation from 20th century structures of feeling. So, you know, the notion that, um, I don't know, conservative voters would um, find themselves allied with uh, a, uh, or, 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 you know, sympathetic with uh, the current Russian regime, uh, I think struck a lot of liberals as just sort of bizarre and impossible. How could, you know, how could in how could American voters, older, white, male conservative voters not be worried about um, Russian influence. And it's just, in a way, it sort of reminds me of how distant the 20th century is because this book is so um, woven into history, the histories of what happened in Europe after after World War II. Along those same lines, in terms of, um, I don't know, socialist, anti-capitalist, resistance movements, activism, there's a moment towards the end of the introduction where Branislav talks about self-management in protest movements, and he talks about these sort of you know, curious moments of spontaneous group behaviors in confrontation with, with police. This one um, example he talks about where protesters, you know, when they're marching up against or they're faced with um, uh, sort of armored police with carrying batons that a bunch of protesters in a particular instant took their shirts off and that the sort of vulnerability of their naked bodies sort of frustrated police um uh, mm. efforts to repress them. It, it put me in mind of, you know, sort of questions about the tactics and the success of movements like um, Occupy Wall Street. Um, there's a an interview that I heard with a, a British, I think English filmmaker named Adam Curtis. Um, he's the uh, documentarian who made a film called Hypernormalization. And he talked in this interview about Occupy and how it had this you know, rigidly horizontal ethic. No one was in charge. Um, you know, the, it, when people began to sort of try to take up a leadership position or, you know, make suggestions, they were sort of, you know, uh, chastened for doing this. And, and Adam Curtis considered this to be, you know, sort of silly or to the detri- detriment of that movement because, in his opinion, leftists are uncomfortable with power. And so until you know, his point was that until um, resistance movements, you know, be they, I don't know, socialist or or um, anti-racist or whatever, um, get comfortable with vertical organization and those types of social structures, they're going to be at a disadvantage to those who recognize the existence of power. To me, it certainly seems like a, a salient and important book now that movements on the left are trying to gird up for um, a struggle against a, a, a newly successful far-right strain of politics internationally. I agree. I agree. And, and I would suspect that that's part of the charge of the book is to, um, in its outreach for 
uh, a larger readership, uh, you know, a readership interested in polit- performances in politics in Yugoslavia, but also performances in politics uh, in spaces and places beyond that region of the former Yugoslavia um, territories, that it gives you a guide as a way of thinking about um, the overlaps uh, of sort of performance and politics. And it's not thinking of performance as entertainment. We know it's more complicated than that. Uh, but how everything from um, the mass rally that, you know, that gets organized uh, to conceptual art, uh, you know, is in conversation, uh, not only with the economic and financial structures, but also with political movements in the moment. Uh, And you can look at across decades, the political shifts that are occurring uh, within uh, Yugoslavia to begin to identify how the art responds quite specifically to uh, shorter temporal spans of instability within one's own nation. Well, maybe let's leave that conversation about Branislav's book there and move on to our second topic, thetheatertimes.com. This is a new website uh, offering theater news from far and wide. Uh, It was launched by Magda Romanesca and her collaborators. It's an ambitious, exciting new website with a lot of great content on it. Harvey, do you want to start us off by uh, telling us your reactions to this new website? Yes, absolutely. Um, so uh, the Theater Times, it was co-founded by Magda Romanska and uh, Beatrix Kabor. And uh, what it aims to do is it aims to be a, and I quote, a nonpartisan global portal for theater news, uh, end quote. Essentially, and I say this in a positive way, it's kind of like the Huffington Post for theater. There are 70 regional editors all around the globe, and the aim is to you know, offer a series of unfiltered, uh, in some cases reprinted, uh, previously published articles alongside new content about theater in Asia, in Africa, in the U.S., uh, 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 commentary about direction and and uh, stage design and a, a lot and, and a huge range of topics. And you know what they want to do is they want to serve as the global source for theater news. And if you look at their website, which has only been around for a few months now, it already has about 18,000 likes and climbing. And it seems to be a valuable contribution to uh, our field. So what are your thoughts on the Theater Times? I love this. Uh, I, I think it's great. And I would encourage uh, anyone who's who's interested to, to not only go and check out the site, but also to read um, Magda's editorial introduction and rationale for the site. Um, because I think what it really does effectively is to, and, and its its purpose is really to, to give people access to information about theater around the world through perspectives that are not always filtered through a kind of dominant, you know, New York, North American, London-based critical lens. And, you know, so that even like, you know, performance anywhere gets, gets read through, why is this interesting to us in New York? Um, was, that was sort of my takeaway from it. And I think it's very effective in that. And it, it's, it's got a great group of people, uh, regional editors, but also topical editors. And to, for my money really speaks to exactly what digital scholarship can do, which is to disperse, to uh, create m- multiple modes of input and then different ways of disseminating that information. So I, I think it's a a great undertaking and, and a really valuable resource. And, and assuming that it is effective at continuing to archive and, and develop a sustainability model, which it certainly seems to be doing that now, uh, I think it'll be a great resource going forward. Yeah, I, I agree. I was really impressed by the uh, website, all aspects of it. The you know, the, It's a beautiful website. It works very well. The access to all, you know, um, dispatches of good writing about theater from you know, almost everywhere uh, on earth was was really great. You know, there's a really impressive list of contributors, the uh, sort of regional editors that they have uh, cover, you know, sort of interesting collection of areas so that there are regional editors covering Iran, um, Mexico, a couple covering UK theater, one covering uh, Agnes Bach on transmedia, which I think means uh, sort of technology and performance, digital performance. Um, and, you know, I think Harvey's comparison to the Huffington Post is apt because it seems as though there's a wide 
you know, very wide group of contributors, um, including people who are accomplished columnists um, like Alex uh, Sears, um, but also just younger writers who are sort of trying their hand at the essay form. You know, there was something about Magda's essay that I have to say sort of pitched the project in these heroic tones that I wondered about. You know, it's it's offered as a kind of countervailing force to predatory and colonial practices where Western scholars go and write about theater and then, you know, take what they want and leave. And, you know, the notion that, uh, I don't know, these sort of like enduring structures of interculturalism might be, I don't know, resolved or ameliorated through a website or an app, I thought was, I don't know, curious. Um, But the project itself, I think, is is, uh, really excellent and really promising. And I hope that it continues to to thrive and, and publish. Yeah, I mean, I do think that one of the sort of challenges related to this project is how do you present the work that occurs all over the place, right? You know, how, you know, how do you present the work that is, you know, the, the theater work that's occurring in in Egypt, in uh, Iran, and a variety of other places? And what what Magda says in her sort of opening uh, remarks, uh, her her her, her editorial comment about why the Theater Times exists is essentially to say that what she wants to do is to give artists a chance to present their own perspective, their own sort of local, um, locally informed, regional perspective, uh, and to share that with the world rather than having a sort of U.S.-based, <laughs> you know, or U.K.-based scholar mm-hmm. basically go into that region, report on what happened, uh, almost like it's a colonialist enterprise, right? And you know there is value, I suspect, in in this outreach in a, in terms of allowing local artists to comment upon their uh, regional scene. Of course, the challenges of publication, the challenges of the dissemination of knowledge, is such that you know the reality is that the co-founders are UK based and US based. Uh, you know the platform mm-hmm. gets um, um, presumably. Um, um, developed and supported through these existing systems, right? So it's hard to fully untether yourself away from that structure of of the West, mm-hmm. you know, introducing the non-West in some ways. Uh, but nevertheless, there is great value in this. Like just looking at the uh, today's uh, uh, the, the Theater Times, uh, and this consists of not daily updates, but I would say articles that appear every couple of weeks. You know, you can see an obituary on a Egyptian theater artist. You can see a study of Korean theater, a retrospective Korean theater in 2016. Uh, there's a cover story uh, related to New Zealand theater, and and I think that's absolutely fascinating. And my hope is that just by the process of reading these articles, it inspires people to, you know, be aware that theater is a global enterprise yeah. and not something that's constrained to just two continents or like a continent in a few other countries. I guess I, I'm more optimistic about this uh, than, than panel. I, while it's true that the infrastructure, right, I mean, like, servers live somewhere in the world, right? Um, and it's usually someplace that's got a good supply of electricity. That said, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine the analog version of this. That's true. Um, that does the same thing, right? I mean, you know, uh, first of all, it's got what appears to be a fairly flat and dispersed editorial structure, that it is not just about generating new content, but also about aggregating uh, work from other places, I think also speaks to that. Right. And frankly, the barrier to publication uh, for this kind of a digital platform is a lot less than what it is when there's, uh, even for you know a very sophisticated online print journal, like a single journal, you know, you've got limited space, you've got li- limited editorial staff. So I think, it's, I think there's a real potential to maximize the digital platform to the, I, you know, I, I don't disagree with you, panel, somewhat heroic, heroically framed uh, goals of the project. But uh, frankly, I think uh, yeah. to succeed, you kind of have to have a certain amount of chutzpah and and uh, and to see it as a heroic en- enterprise. I mean, as someone who's worked on, on, you know, smaller versions of similar kinds of projects and more websites than I ever want to do, uh, or remember, you know, that this has gotten launched 
in a relatively and I have no idea what the lead time uh, was, but that it's that it's flourished in a relatively short period of time, that it appears to be sustaining, that there are so many people involved with it, that it is representative, um, you know, if not comprehensive, more significantly than virtually any other outlet that I can think of um, without it devolving into a kind of encyclopedic uh, you know, uh, sort of mishmash of, of lack of structure um, and navigation, I think is a real is a real testament. So I, I'm I I'm going to remain fully optimistic that it will <laughs> achieve all its heroic ends yes. and transform the world well, into a much better place. Let me let me let me follow up because I I I do not want. I, my snarky comment was just about the essay. I am a fan. I am bullish on thetheatertimes.com. Um, I thought that, you know, just the way that it was presented as foremost a kind of effort to undo or uh, provide an alternative to, you know, structures that I think are deeply pervasive and that none of us are fully immune to. That's all that I was talking about. I think the website is great, and I'm optimistic about it as well. Um, so please don't, I, I, I don't want people to think that I, you know, I'm giving this a thumbs down. I think, it, I think it's awesome. It is interesting also in the context of a lot of other publishing projects in our field um, that you can think of. I mean, for one thing, there are you know, there's uh, the theater philosophy uh, website that came out a couple years ago that I think Will Dodario was central in in putting together was also you know an international network of con- of contributors specifically about theater and philosophy. There's theaterhistoriography.net that uh, Henry Bile and Scott Magelson put together uh, as part of a you know in tandem with the publication of their edited volume. There's HowlRound um, also, which is also um, you know run by an Emerson faculty member also. You know, it's not crowdsourced, but it's in, in that kind of model, like you know, aspects of Huffington Post, where you know anyone basically with a good idea for an essay and who can complete it can you know have a shot at getting published on it. So, in a way, it seems to be like it's the latest instance of a new model of semi-academic publishing that's happening in our field. And so, I'm wondering if. You know, are we going to see that some of these really take off and become enduring resources? Um, are some of them going to, you know, go for a while and then become defunct? Um, it'll be interesting to see what's happening. But a lot of people are sort of cottoning to the new potential of digital publishing um, in really interesting and, and, and productive ways. Yeah. And, and it does seem to effectively, and, and by saying it, it I, what I mean is these. Types of online publications, uh, whether Telround or the Theater Times, succeeds in creating a network uh, that you know invites in and connects theater artists all over the place. And I think that's really important because sometimes theater communities c- can feel localized and sometimes marginalized. And you know the the value and the benefit of these publications is you know that they real it helps you realize just how robust the field of theater actually really is. Well, why don't we move on uh, to a related topic, um, social media and theater and performance studies. In a way, this is an evergreen topic. Um, uh, there are always things going on with the people, with the way that people um, in our field use websites like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Um, we began to wonder amongst ourselves if there's anything we could say about the way that um, people in our field seem to be using social media tools um, compared with other fields or whether or not there are trends sort of within that phenomenon. Um, Sarah, you seem like you might be a person who has some ideas about this topic. Uh, what can you tell us about your thinking about social media and theater and performance studies? Well, so I'll start by, by just saying that uh, th- this question comes at a, at a strange time because I, I am now... I've just divested myself of a big chunk of my social media portfolio. That's right. You're off Facebook now. I right? quit Facebook. That's Yay. right. And uh, and deactivated and then subsequently deleted my account. And I think I've expired the 14 days. So wow. I think it's like everything that was there is is now gone. Although you know I downloaded a data file uh, archive. Um, I, I'm I'm still active on Twitter. Uh, I you know and I use various other things. I get a lot of questions about whether people should have social media, you know, as, um, as an account, um, as well as, you know, whether it's worth creating a, a, your, a website. And I'm, before I sort of say more about that, I'm curious, like, what, like, what is the social media that, that the two of you use? And is there any that you 
haven't or won't or or never did or didn't think was useful, right? Harvey, you want to go first? Yeah. Um, so I use Facebook a fair amount, but to be honest, my Facebook approach is you know it's really friends who are are friends uh, and uh, people who I've had great conversations over a beer with. <laughs> like that's generally my my rule in, in terms of whether I accept a friend request or not. And it's also one of those things where I think of it as it's just keeping people updated in terms of what's going on in my life. So half the things I post are related to my kids doing things, and the other half are just work-related things. Um, I do that. And I also have a website as well. Mm-hmm. You have a Twitter account, too, but you're not on it. I, I never use it. When, when, my, when, my book, when my first book came out, Embodied Black Experience, the marketing person at Michigan encouraged me to... Uh, create a Twitter account for the book. And I just decided I didn't really have that many things I cared about tweeting about. So I I have a Twitter account, but I never tweet. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am on Facebook, but in the past I have also uh, uh, left it. And then that was about the time when I was finishing my book. And partly it was to you know minimize my sort of online distraction. And then once the book came out, I went back on Facebook because I felt like it was a good thing to... Um, connect with people professionally and also socially somewhat to let them know that the book was out. Um, I love Twitter. I've been on Twitter since I think 2009. Um, and, uh, really that's sort of my preferred social media, um, activity. And, you know, initially I, I sort of like would keep my personal life postings only on Facebook and, um, sort of more professional on Twitter. I'm a late adopter to Instagram where I now post sort of family pictures and sort of personal life stuff there. But as a professional animal, I'm mostly Twitter. I will say also that um, Facebook, though there are times when I want to leave it again, I feel like it's um, as a promotional tool for this very podcast, it's kind of indispensable. And so I don't feel like I can fully leave Facebook. The the other thing you mentioned, though, Sarah, the question about a personal website, I know that each of you do have personal websites. And by personal, I just mean a professional website for you, the human being, Harvey and Sarah. I've never done that. And I've always from time to time, I've wondered, maybe I should have a website. And so I'm curious to hear you guys talk about the what you perceive to be the advantages of having a, a sort of homepage for yourself. Well, I can talk a little bit about how I originally uh, decided to do that. Um, just for, for listeners, uh, sort of clarity, you know, I, I think it's important to recognize that social media, I, I would say that the vast majority of academics uh, are Facebook and Twitter, and that's almost across virtually any field. Well, I would say most people aren't on Twitter. I'd say almost everyone's on Facebook, but Twitter's a smaller okay. fraction, don't you it, think? It, it is. Yeah, no, that's that's true. I would say, though, that the um, there's at least a kind of significant demographic that does Twitter in a professional context and may or may not do professional Facebook or personal Facebook. Like, Facebook has always felt more personal to me. Um, and being on it for several years, I found that I gravitated towards it, that and had increasingly difficult dis- a difficult time distinguishing personal from professional, um, as well as just a kind of constant uh, self-promotion, which like whether it was like how much fun I'm having on vacation or, you know, how productive I'm being, uh, you know, as I always said, I, when I grow up, I want to be who I am. On, I am on Facebook. <laughs> no, um, I like the idea of promoting because, one's own personal life through Facebook. Because like, that, well, that's, that's what Facebook is, right? Uh, you know, uh, it's like, you know, um, there's a very funny quote that I'm going to mangle, but that was circulating, right? Which is like, you know, Facebook is like, you know, how wonderful my life is. And then, you know, all these other things. And then Twitter, like the world is ending, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, uh, but there's also, of course, Instagram, uh, which is image based. And I think uh, could be a really interesting research tool, um, as well as a great dissemination tool. Um, I frequently have sort of taken to posting uh, like fun archival photographs and images from theater and performance history there. Um, uh, for the younger set, of course, there's uh, Snapchat. I don't know if either of you are on Snapchat. I, I can't get over that hurdle. For the for the, I... the the more staid among us, there's LinkedIn, um, which is kind of like you know uh, a, a really beefed up CV in in, in my experience, um, as well there's as. Acad- 
academia.edu, is that what you were going to say? Well, academia.edu and ResearchGate, um, which are very interesting and are posing particular challenges to the field in terms of, uh, you know, what counts as a personal website when you're allowed to post your, you know, PDFs of your published work? And do they have to be the last... Uh, you know, prior to publication and, you know, what is this going to do if everybody's doing that all the time, you know, and everybody's getting it for free there, you know, are they going to go through journal subscriptions and how does that affect, um, you know, journals that that uh, count, right, downloads um, as a way of generating revenue? So, I mean, I, I do think that the question of social media has a lot of different layers to it, one being, you know, what is each individual trying to do or trying to accomplish? Sometimes it's as simple as building community or promoting your work or, you know, simply archiving or venting, right? And I think this is one of the dangers is that some of these media sites, uh, they, they, they dangerously waver between diary and megaphone. And, uh, and it can be hard to remember which is which in a particular moment. Yeah. And, and, you know, professors have been targets of politically motivated campaigns to embarrass and smear them on the basis of, you know, you know, half baked thoughts they've put on Twitter or extreme things they've they've said on Twitter. So you have to be kind of careful. Well, yeah, I mean, and then and, you know, certainly in uh, the other side of this with the, the sort of caution is is to not forget the privacy concerns with all of this. Right. I mean, these are forms of surveillance. They are privately uh, owned and operated. Um, you know, you are the product that is being, you know, bundled together um, with with other folks and sold. Um, and I think it's it's very easy to lose sight of that. One, because it's unpleasant. And um, two, because everything in the in the in the media platform is designed to keep you from thinking about that. One of the interesting things about leaving Facebook, for those of you who've never tried to leave it, um, is that one of the last things, you have to go through this series, it's actually quite difficult to deactivate and then very difficult to delete your account. Um, but one of the last things you do as you're going through the series of steps to, to disconnect is that it shows you um, uh, a little array of, um, of the people that you've interacted with the most with a little mm-hmm. line of like, panel will miss you, right? <laughs> Do you want to say yeah. goodbye to panel, right? I mean, and so yeah. there's this kind of, uh, you know, like, you know. Commod- you know commodification of your emotional it, life? It, it, yes, no, it's like there's a great affect kind of study there. And uh, my former colleague at the University of Buffalo, Taro Carpi, um, actually writes quite a lot about digital death and um, and and notions of digital affect. And so he he talks specifically about Facebook. And I will say that when I post a little a little note saying, "Hey, by the way, everybody, I'm leaving for good, really, this time," um, it was it was like getting to attend my own funeral, right? People were like, "Oh, it was so lovely having you here. You were oh, I will miss you so much. It was really great. I recommend everyone doing it. You know, even fake it. I love it. You know, you get yeah. a lot of love, <laughs> and then you're like, Delete "Oh no, I changed account. my mind." <laughs> That's great. I, I am I am really curious about the website question though. Mm. I, I've often felt like, well, you know, my department webpage has me and all my publications, so I don't feel like scholarly reputation really hangs on having a good landing page or web page for your yourself apart from the university. Um, but you know, I could see how it might be a good thing in terms of. Um, your sort of public profile, if if people in the media are looking for an expert on, you know, I don't know, whatever topic you research or something, maybe that's better. I mean, Harvey, you're someone who does a lot of sort of public intellectual writing and, and talking, a lot of radio and media interviews, a lot of, um, you know, writing for um, mainstream media outlets. Is your personal website, do you think of it as something that helps uh, you uh, prop up your kind of public profile outside of, outside of academia, or why do you have it? That's a good question. Um, I think so. I, I imagine that. Well, I, I don't imagine anything. I I know that a number of people have approached me because of the website. Uh, there's a way in which. Well, the, the, okay. I'll start from the beginning here. Uh, the reason why I created the my own personal website was that the university uh, at North, North Northwest University 
stopped allowing uh, professors to have their own websites. Like there was a period where you could actually have your own website hosted by the university, and a lot of people did. And then there was an instance of of a Holocaust denier who was on faculty. And that became the moment in which the university decided it wasn't the best idea to have your faculty host their websites through the university. And then that was the point um, in which, or maybe a couple years later, that was the point in which I decided, hey, like this is a good time for me just to uh, mm-hmm. move that information, my own information elsewhere uh, beyond whatever is listed on the website. Also, at Northwestern, uh, it's difficult to up- update your webpage through the university, you know, so I can do more real-time updates uh, through my own personal website. Uh, the benefit of the website for me has been a chance to uh, allow my me and my work to be introduced to um, you know, sort of anyone who's sort of looking for a variety of things. So, so people often will keyword search things such as I don't know black performance or lynching or something like that, and they'll come up to come up to my profile. Uh, so I've had um, just kind of uh, sort of random like everyday people who like discover like a, a postcard like a, of a racist caricature, and they by googling like a racist caricature postcard, they've come across my own research through my website. Uh, and then they've emailed me. They've mm-hmm. called me. I've spoken to them about their about what they've dis- they found. And in some cases, they've actually um, like shared these things. It's like they've gone through like you know their grandmother's collect uh, you know like their you know their their dead grandmother's stuff and found like these racist postcards and didn't know what to do with them. They're like, hey, you have a collection. Take them. So, <laughs> you know, so, so that has happened to so me. So here's an advantage of having your own website. You will get yeah, yeah, racist so, postcards so, so in the mail. I would say probably about a dozen times now I've received a random package in the mail from someone, huh. um, you know, in, in, including a, 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 with a postcard in, 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 in it saying like, you know, with a, with a narrative that says, I found this in my grandfather's stuff and I didn't know what to do with it, but I didn't want to throw it away. That's you know, interesting. Maybe you could have find use to this, uh, find use for this. Uh, and then And then for journalists, um, the same thing that they'll you know email me or call me and just ask for commenting, uh, ask for comments on something. So that it's is one typical. of the that is one of the advantages of having your own website is you can actually uh, have a lot more control about how you drive traffic, um, and you can monitor that right. So you can by linking. Uh, I mean, most search engines are based on algorithms that are affiliative, right? So how many things link and how many people hit and what are the key terms. And on your own site, you can see what are the people, what are people searching for, what are the key terms that they're using to find you, what are the browsers that are um, where you're showing up, where are you in those lists. Um, I started it because our department website was so ugly and difficult to navigate um, that I wanted a place, and and I also use mine as a blog, a, a very infrequent kind of scattershot, not very interesting blog, just to be clear. Um, but I think that I think it's really helpful to know who you are online, mm-hmm. um, and to and and to as much as you can take control of that representation, particularly if you're someone who's looking to change jobs or um, to change fields, uh, to really work uh, at uh, establishing uh, a reputation that may, that may not be as uh, you know evident from your home institution. You know, so if mm-hmm. you're teach- doing a lot of, let's say, heavy practice-based teaching, but you you know uh, have your PhD and are working on a project that might not be visible from your department page, like where you're teaching like three sections of basic acting. So establishing a a, a blog. Uh, you know, or a website that articulates that. It just gives you a little bit more control of who you are in the world um, from a digital perspective. And why don't we wrap things up there? I know that a couple of us have to uh, get on to other things in real life on the non-online parts of our career. Of course, the last thing we'll do is is, uh, share our drafts. These are the um, thoughts in process, things we've been mulling over recently. Harvey, why don't you start us off? What's your draft for this month? Strangely, my drafts seem not to be changing. I'm, I'm <laughs> continuing to be concerned, obsessed with, fascinated by this Trump moment. Uh, specifically, thinking about how artists and uh, in, in theater and also in other fields are responding to uh, the new administration. Right. So I'm wondering everything from. Sarah Warner and her HowlRound collection of essays uh, and interviews on the Not My President movement to the recent uh, Women's March uh, all over the place uh, to, I know, uh, 
you know, in, in Atha, I know uh, Patty Abara, who's the president of Atha, is about to uh, release a statement as well. It just figuring out what is the future uh, possibilities, dangers uh, awaiting the arts you know, in this moment with Trump being president. And people don't seem to know. I mean, there's been rumors about, you know, via the Hill, right, you know, sort of unsubstantiated uh, uh, assertions by sort of former staffers uh, that, you know, cuts could be in the horizon. But then, as I previously mentioned on this podcast, you know, you know sort of history shows that under Republican administration, you know, arts funding tends to increase. So there's just lots of anxiety. And I'm curious to kind of get a sense of what's happening, where we're headed. Yeah, this is going to be a perpetual perpetual obsession and matter that we can't, I think, afford to stop paying attention to. Sarah, what do you have for us? So my draft is is somewhat related uh, and somewhat uh, also in honor of uh, Carl Weber, um, which is that in this time, right, uh, of sort of going back and and you know, thinking about what one can do to console oneself, certainly watching via social media, for me at least, uh, the Women's March on Washington. Uh, I sent half my family, or rather they went themselves, half of my family went and participated, and so it was great to, to see their re- reflections. Um, uh, but I've really, I've been getting really into um, uh, Breck's uh, poems in exile, and uh, my German is, Will not we will not speak of it, but um, but in in, Eng- in various English translations, which are quite good, uh, they're really unbelievably beautiful, and uh, and I've found them tremendously comforting, and I don't I don't know exactly why that is. Um, in some ways, they're a ki- they feel like a kind of cliched response, right? I remember on November 9th, there was a lot of will there be singing in the dark times? Yes, there will also be singing about the dark times, floating around. But but beyond just that one motto from the Zvenborg poems. There's just such rich insights uh, of thought and empathy and reflections that uh, I've I've been really enjoying. So so that's that's what I'm drafting about. Harvey, do you need to sign off? Uh, sorry, I have to go. I have to interview. That's no. Kevin that's right no now. problem. Uh, bye, Harvey. We'll we'll uh, we'll catch up with you soon. All right. Good to Take see care. you. So my draft um, is also related. I guess we have all three sort of repressed our. Um, politics and Trump feelings for the drafts segment. Um, This is a weird one, but it's been on my mind. Uh, So I think it was last month, I think it was in December, um, uh, Scott Magelson tweeted at the podcast account um, that he was about to watch uh, a Marina Abramovich performance and he was thinking about ethics. And so this was a reference that he was making uh, as, a, as a good friend and colleague and fan of the show to the discussion of Nick Rideout's uh, book Theater and Ethics that we had had on a prior episode. Right. So some troll Twitter account replied then to Scott and on tap um, this tweet about how Marina Abramovich is depraved and Alistair Crawley was a pedophile and we're sick. And of course, at first I was like, what is this? I don't know what this is at all. So then digging into local, you know, sort of recent news, um, this was actually tied to the Podesta leaks. So if you guys don't know what Pizzagate is, it was this wild conspiracy theory that arose out of some of the um, hacked and released John Podesta emails that um, uh, referred to some pizzeria in D.C. and built this whole theory about how, you know, Podesta's emails about ordering pizza from Comet Pizza were code words for some sort of, uh, you know, child sex slavery ring that was operated out of that pizzeria. Part of this theory um, it made um, uh, reference to the fact that I believe Podesta had been emailing about Marina Abramovich, and so trolls or you know people attempting to attack Podesta um, pointed out that some of Marina Abramovich's work had been inspired by you know rituals that Alistair Crawley um, had done, and so. By virtue of the fact that we had talked about Marina Abramovich on the podcast, we suddenly were in contact with this 
entity, you know, you can, if you want to go through our mentions, you can find this account, this entity that seems like just a just this, this fire hose of negativity and anti-liberal, anti-Clinton um, material. Um, but it was a weird, you know, minute moment in which even this, you know, podcast, which is pretty focused in its topics and really not uh, meant to be about you know, partisan politics at all, um, was contacted through the increasingly deranged and lurid um, world of social media political communication. So there's that for you. I've been thinking about that. That's, an, that's I wasn't, I, you know, uh, I, I was not aware of that. Uh, and that's yeah, rather uh, unnerving. I, I will- I will add that uh, Scott Mackelson very quickly owned this troll <laughs> by <laughs> making reference to the 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 guy's um, Twitter handle, um, and that's worth looking up if you if you want. So go go check that out in the mentions of uh, ontap podcast doc, uh, or ontap podcast the the Twitter account. Um, Fair enough. W- yeah. With that, I think we should we sign should, off. Yeah. Can I just say one thing before we do that, please? Uh, which is to say, as a sort of which I should have mentioned earlier with the follow-up to the social media, is I think that um, one thing that people need to be mindful of is that anything you put in public and online does make you in some ways vulnerable. Absolutely. Uh, and, and you know, that's going to mean different things for different people, and, and different people have, you know, different risk profiles. Um, but I do, I mean, I think we would be remiss not to not to include some, some mention of that as well. Yeah, get your accounts encrypted. Um upgrade your passwords. And I think it, 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 there's a longer conversation to have about the extent to which one tries to maintain privacy and anonymity when engaging in public uh, political communication and the extent to which one uses one's public profile for advocacy. But absolutely, anything you post online is part of a permanent record and anyone can do whatever they want with it. So be careful out there online, guys. ONTAP is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for ONTAP, and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast.